How many of you wish you were still young enough to go to youth camp? They look like they had a blast this week. I was able to stop by for a little bit uh, one afternoon, and I tell you, God was really doing something special on the life of the teenagers at camp, really showing up in, in great ways, and we're so glad to have these opportunities to invest in our teenagers. Well, let me welcome everyone, those of you joining us online and in the cafe and other services. Uh, just glad to have all of you here with us today. My name is Aaron. I'm the pastor here. If you are new or visiting our church family, let me point out this uh, red worship guide very quickly and just say that was actually created with you in mind. Hopefully it'll answer any basic questions you may have about today's experience. Inside, you're going to find our message notes as well as small group discussion guide. And then most importantly, we have this little blue card and we're very passionate about this card because this is an opportunity for us to pray with you and to pray for you. And even if you're not a so-called religious person or have faith or even know how to pray, we would still like to pray for you and to pray with you. We take it very seriously. And I would encourage you, don't be the only one praying for yourself. Like Get other people praying for you when you're going through challenges in life. And we would love to uh, do that with you. And so if you'd let us know what's going on at the end of the service, you can give this to any of our leaders or drop it in any tithing offering box. You'll have a whole team of us praying for you uh, this week. So take a moment and think about that. Um, before we get into the message, I just want to take a moment and uh, uh, honor my wife a little bit today. We celebrate 13 years that she has put up with me. It's our anniversary today, which without a doubt isn't, if you know our story, it's an absolute miracle that we, we made it 13 years. I think 13 is a new 25 in today's standards. And, and so we are just, uh, we're, we're so excited. And, and I, all I can tell you is hang in there because it gets good. It gets, it gets much, much better if you can just hang in there and work through some stuff and with God's grace and God's help. Uh, and, and I've put her through a lot. I think God knew exactly what I needed. Uh, I needed somebody with a lot of grace. And I'm just so grateful for her and all the grace that she has given me. Uh, when you leave today, when you leave church today, I want everyone to, uh, when you're heading out of the parking lot, take a look at the right. You'll see a little yellow sign on our property. That's a sign from the city of Carlsbad, and that's really good news. What that means is we are, we are in full motion with this new children and youth building that we are building. That's a notification from the city. We, we've been going back and forth. There's a dance you do at the city of Carlsbad where you submit plans, and then they give you feedback, and then you rework the plans, and then you resubmit the plans, and then they give you feedback, and then you rework the plans and resubmit the plans, and you kind of go back and forth for a while. Now, we budgeted in that time, understanding how the city moves and works, and, and we feel like we're right on target to have all of our plans and permits approved by the end of the year, uh, and God willing, we will be breaking ground in January or February of next year, and then it's a six to nine month construction process, and so uh, I'm believing that by this time time next year, we're going to be having a grand opening of our new children and youth building. So when you leave today, take a look at that yellow sign and just say a prayer because that's just good news that things are in motion and happening. I invite you to pull your message notes out. We are on a series where we are studying through the book of Galatians verse by verse by verse. And today's message for me is kind of a toss-up between last week as far as what my favorite message of the series is so far. I really, really enjoyed last week's message, and I personally got a lot out of it. I don't know if that sounds 
you know, normal to you or not, but as I really feel like I'm pastoring myself through the series as well as you, because every week I'm diving into this book and going deep, and it's just a treasure chest uh, full of just life-giving truth and principle and application, and I'm loving what I'm personally learning out of Galatians. And so we're, last week we began the whole concept of what does it mean to be adopted by God? What does it mean to be God's own child, son or daughter, to have you know, the creator of the universe as a father. And today we're going to continue on with that theme as we get into the very beginning of chapter four. And so to be very honest, I'm very excited about today's message. I don't know if it's going to be my favorite of the series or not. Last week was really good. This week is, uh, is also really good. So it's kind of a toss up for me. So we're going to jump into the first seven verses of chapter four. I'll read it and then we will dig through it. Beginning in verse 1, what, uh, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Incredible passage of scripture, a lot of meaning, a lot of depth in these seven verses. And what I want to highlight today is there's two amazing parallels in this passage, two, two kind of parallel stories that are taking place, two, two things. You see the word sent used twice. Anytime you see a parallel in ancient writing, pay attention because it's very, very important. There, there's a communication here that God is up to two different Things. The first thing that we see in the passage in your notes is God sent his son. God sent his son. Now the question is, why? Why did God send his son? Well, last week we ended with verse 29 of chapter 3. And let me just say, if you've missed any of the messages, uh, each and every one of these messages stand all by itself. If you haven't heard anything else in this series, today's message will stand on its own. But there is value and benefit to listening to the series as a whole as we study this book. Last week, we ended in verse 29 of chapter 3. It says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, when Paul originally wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia, there was no such thing as chapters and verses. We added the chapters and verses much, much later simply to help, it, help us navigate the Bible, to make it a little bit easier. But I never want to take it for granted because I've actually had people uh, attend our church who've asked me, what do the numbers mean? Well, it, it's chapter and verse that we added probably about 400 years after the Bible was written. It doesn't change any of the text of the writing. It simply helps us navigate through to, to reference and find things quickly. All of that to say is, from verse 29 to chapter 4, verse 1, it's just one thought. It's one letter. It's, it's, one, it's a continuation. So there's no, it's not like you know, different chapters of a novel. It's a continuation of the same thought. So he says, if you belong to Christ and you're Abraham's seed, what I am saying is that 
as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time sent by his father. Now, uh, to understand this, you have to understand a little bit about ancient culture in this Greco-Roman world of the first century. They made a very big deal about coming of age. So if you were a child, even though uh, you may inherit the entire estate, and even if your parents died prematurely and you, you, you found yourself the sole owner of the estate at 10 years old, you still couldn't make decisions. You were under trustees. You were under guardians until the age of 14, and in most situations, the age of 25. And so what Paul is saying is that being an heir is no different than being a slave if you're underage, if you're, if you're still a child. He says, so also when we were underage. So he's relating this to our spiritual life, our spiritual journey. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So what does it mean to be a child in the faith or a child spiritually? Well, it's no different than being a slave. You see, what Paul is implying here is a major spiritual condition that we deal with, that we've all been through in our life. And it's the very reason why God had to send his son. In your notes, it's this. We had promise and not possession. Like we had this incredible promise that God sent his son as a gift. So we had this incredible promise, this incredible inheritance that we couldn't use. We couldn't activate. We couldn't tap into it. We couldn't control it. It was ours, but we didn't have liberty to use it because we were still under guardians. And what Paul is relating our guardian to is the law. And so he gives us kind of three three things he implies in this text. The first is the obvious that the child is not experiencing freedom, that the child can inherit the entire estate, but he still couldn't make any decisions. Second thing he's implying is you need to understand that Paul is not writing to Jewish people, he's writing to non-Jewish people. He's writing to Gentiles in the, the, the Galatia area who did not grow up under Old Testament law. They did not grow up reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They didn't grow up under, uh, under the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. And so what, 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 what could he possibly mean to this group of people that you're a slave to the law? Well, the implication is all of us, whether we grow up as a Jew or a non-Jew, whether we grow up with Old Testament law or religion in our life, we may even grow up non-religion, non-religious or atheist, all of us are, are, are slaves to a law. And that law may not be a religious law, that law simply could be our own standards. We're slaves to our own standards. Like, like it's hard enough living up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. I mean, think about that for a moment. How many of you can honestly say, like, you are exceeding all of the standards you set for your life? Like, you're hitting it out of the park. Like, I'm not talking about God, just your standards, like the standard you hold yourself to. So we're all under a form of slavery to a standard that we can't live up to. And then the last one, the last implication here is that there are many Christians today who've received the promise, but they're not enjoying the benefits of salvation. They're getting no joy out of their Christianity. Yeah, yes, they have faith, and, and they've become a child of God. They just don't enjoy it at all. It's, it's not what they imagine. They're not experiencing the joy of our salvation. So God sends his son, verse 4. But when the set time 
had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sunset, sonship. So we see an incredible story here that is paralleled later on. First, we have an agent. The agent is the son. God sent his son. Where did the agent go? Where did God send him? To the world. For what reason? To redeem the world. To accomplish what? What what is the why that you and I might receive adoption to sonship? Now, this word sonship carries a lot of weight in the original Greek text. It's not just being a son. It's, it's much, much bigger of a word than just being a son. What it implies is the full legal rights, legal responsibility of being the sole heir of a household. It's much, much bigger than you're just somebody's son. I mean, this is huge here. And again, to understand this concept, you've got to understand a little bit about this Greco-Roman ancient culture. Now, they had a very common practice. It's not very common today. I I guess you could still do it, uh, but it's very, very rare if you ever see it done. But in this time period, if you were a wealthy man and you had no biological children of your own, you had no biological children, what you would do before you died is you would adopt. You could adopt a fully grown man, a a, a grown-up. You would adopt them as your legal Son, And so often what they would do is they would adopt somebody from their household, one of the household servants or one of the household slaves. And in a moment, the the second they were adopted, legally, their status changed. They went from being a household servant, a household slave, to in a moment having the full rights and the full benefits as being a son, the legal heir of the household. Can you imagine this concept. This is, they would have understood this concept in this time period. This is a very, very big deal that in a moment they went from being somebody who is employed by the house or a slave of the house in a second. They're now full rights, full responsibilities as a biological only child would have been. It's incredible. Francis Lyle, one of the great Christian historians, he wrote about it in his book, Slaves, Citizens, and Sons, like this. He says, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All of his old debts were instantly canceled. Why? Because that was no longer who he was. So as a slave, he may have owed all this money, But that's not his identity anymore. He goes through this identity change, this this legal status change where everything he was obligated to is now removed off of his life because he has a brand new status as son, as heir. All of the rights, all of the responsibilities. Now, why am I making a big deal out of that? Well, I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, and I know many people who come to Christ, they come to Christ, and when they think about their salvation, they only think about their salvation in negative terms. What do I mean negative terms? We, we, most of us only think about our salvation in terms of what was removed off of our life. Like, I owed this massive debt. Like, I, I accrued this incredible debt through all of my sin and all of my failure and all of my mistakes, and I had this massive debt 
And when I, when I became a Christian, my debt was removed off of my life. Everything that I owed, everything that, that, that was, was on my account, my bill was transferred over to Jesus, and Jesus pays my debt. But you see, what Paul is talking about here, this adoption of sonship means so much more than simply the negative terms of salvation. You see, not only do we lose all of our debt, but there is a transfer to us of all of the son's rights and responsibilities. So yes, all of the debt is transferred off of my life, but all of the privilege of being a one and only biological heir, child, son of the household is transferred onto my life. And in a moment, I am now legally seen by God as his very own son with with every right, every benefit, and every privilege that Jesus Christ himself had is now transferred onto my life in Christ. You see, this is powerful when you think about it. To become a son of God. And again, for those of you that are hung up on the masculine pronoun son, listen to last week's message because you know, we talk about how Paul is writing to men and women alike. He's not, he's not excluding females by using the word son. There's other parts of the Bible that calls us men the bride of Christ. We don't like being called brides any more than most women don't like being called sons, but there's meaning to the word son. So, so catch last week, and you'll understand it really is a powerful, powerful term. The son goes into the world to redeem the world, to give us the legal status, the legal rights as a son. So what Paul is showing the Galatians, and he's showing us today, what we get out of this is not only did Christ remove the curse that we deserved, but at the very same time, he also gives us the blessing that he alone deserved. You see, the slate has been wiped clean. But again, I don't know if you've struggled with this, but when I came to Christ, this is what Christianity looked like to me. Jesus wiped my slate clean. I had this slate, and it was filled with every sin and every wicked thing and every evil thing and every mistake and every failure and everything I was ashamed of. I had this huge slate of stuff. And when I came to Christ, that slate was white clean, white, white as snow, and it was, it was like it was brand new. But my understanding then was now I've got to spend the rest of my life working really, really hard to fill the slate up with good stuff. Like it's now my job to keep it white. It's my job to fill it up with all sorts of good stuff. That's not what happens. That's not at all what Christianity is. Here's Christianity. You have this slate that's filled with everything you've ever done. All of a sudden, Jesus wipes it clean. But not only does he wipe the slate clean, he comes to your slate, and on the slate, in his own handwriting, in his own blood, he writes righteous. He writes worthy. He writes accept, and he does it in a permanent marker, so you can't erase it. So he doesn't just wipe the slate clean, he writes righteous on your slate. He rewrites the slate for you regardless of what you do or don't do. That's why I love my favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin be sin for us. He wiped our slate clean so that in him he can now write on our slate. And what did he write? We might become the righteousness of God. Powerful to think about what the Son accomplished for us. That was the first mission we see in the text. But again, there's, there's this parallel story that you see. The word sent is used twice. So let's look at the second one. Number two, God sent the Spirit. So we have God sent His Son, and then we have this parallel story, God sent the Spirit. Verse 6, because you are His sons, 
God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Look at this. It's the very same outline. There's an agent. God sends somebody. The agent is sent to a specific place. The agent is sent on a specific mission to bring about a specific result. But what I want you to notice in this parallel story is there's very different missions here. They're very different results that the two missions accomplish in our life. The first agent was the Son. This is not the Son. This is the Spirit. The Spirit was not sent into the world. The Spirit was sent into our hearts, it says. The Spirit was sent not to redeem as the Son was sent. The Spirit was sent to create a a calling out of our life. So you can think about it like this. The mission of the Son, the work of the Son brings us an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel like it or not. That's the purpose of the Son. The Son is sent to bring about adoption to sonship. That is a legal status that we become and we become it whether we feel like it or not. It has nothing to do with our emotions. It has nothing to do with our feelings. It is something Christ has done on our behalf that we simply receive. But the work of the Spirit in the story is very, very different. You see, the work of the Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience. You see, the Son gives us something that is objective, something that is hard, something that is dogmatic, a truth. The Spirit brings us something that's very, very subjective. It's, a, it's an experience. It's something you feel, something you taste. Look at the text again. Because you are His sons. Because you are His sons. It's a huge phrase right there. You see, what it's saying is you're not becoming His son. You already are a son. The presumption is this has already happened. So if you're already a son, the mission has to be different and it has to be additional because the the sending of the son was so that we could become a son. Here, the presumption is we already are a son. So the Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish something different in our life, something additional. Look at it like this. The son was sent into the world. The spirit was sent into our hearts. Again, the son is after something objective something in the world, a piece of history that is created where we now can be adopted into sonship. We can have full rights, full privileges, full benefits as being the biological son of the father. We get all of the rights as if we were. So look at it like this. The work of the son is something that is done externally to us something that we can receive without having any feeling or emotions at all. But the work of the Spirit is done internally in us. And it consists of us being completely moved emotionally as well as intellectually by the love of the Father. You see, the Spirit goes on the inside. His job is to give us an experience, to actually make us feel like a son. You see, the son was sent to make us sons. That was his job, whether we feel like it or not. The spirit is sent to actually make us feel it, to make us taste it, to make us understand it. Let me put it like this. You can claim what the son has done, but you can only experience what the spirit does. 
This is why you will never have a fulfilled Christian life without a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. There's got to be a Holy Spirit experience in your life for Christianity to truly take place. Let me put it like this. If you're feeling down as a Christian, if you're struggling in your faith, you're feeling like, I don't know if God loves me, I'm feeling unworthy, I'm, I'm feeling like I've blown it, I'm feeling distant from God, then you can claim what the Son has done for you. You can claim that I am a son of God. You can remind yourself of that. You can claim that, that I am the head and not the tail, and I'm above and not beneath, and greater is in me than he that is in the world, and I'm a child of God. You can claim all of that. But that's not what Paul is describing in verse 6. What Paul is talking about verse 6 is something very, very different. It's not something that you claim. It's something that you, you taste, you feel, you experience, something that happens in you. Now, why is this necessary? Why can't I just have a Christianity without all the emotion? Like, I don't want to get all emotional about this. I don't want to feel anything. I just, you know, I just want the head knowledge of it. I don't want anything in my heart. That just sounds a little bit weird. Well, let me explain it like this. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Children of the Living God, had a chapter called The Spirit of Adoption. And in the chapter, he describes some of the situation of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a very, very famous story in the Bible, in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son takes all of the father's, you know, all of his inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders it and he wastes it. And then he decides to come back home. But if you look at his repentance in the story, it's very faulty. It's very ambiguous. It's very, very vague the way the son comes back to the father. It says in the story in verse 18, I will set out and I will go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. How many know that's very vague? Nothing specific about his repentance. And that, that, that speaks volumes. I don't know if you know, we have any married people here today, but how many know when you say, I'm sorry, in marriage, it really doesn't go anywhere? Like, you need to be specific about what you're being sorry for if it's going to work for you. Because just saying, I'm sorry, will just frustrate them all the more. Like, you need to be specific about what you're repenting of if, if there's going to be any improvement in the relationship. And that's what we see here. He's just very vague. He's like, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And he's just throwing out these blanket terms to cover it all. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Very famous story in the Bible, very love story, one, one of most people's favorite stories in the Bible. But the lesson that Jesus is trying to communicate is often overlooked here. You see, what Jesus is showing us in, in, in the return of this younger brother is he showing us that the reality of the love of God is typically the last thing that dawns on us in our faith. The last thing that we truly understand, the last thing that we truly comprehend, the last thing that we, that we finally figure out is how much God loves us. Now, why is that the, typically the hardest thing for us to understand? Well, I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, the reason why I really didn't feel like God loved me or understood that God loved me or, or even re realized God loved me is because I was too busy looking at me. And I had done a lot of things in my life that I was ashamed of. I've done a lot of things that I regret. I've done a lot of things that I'm not proud of. And if I'm looking at me, it's impossible for me to believe that God loves me. 
because, because I'm looking at me. I, I realize that, that I'm not worthy of God's love. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. It becomes so difficult for me to believe that God loves me if I'm looking at my performance, if I'm looking at my past, if I'm looking at even my present performance at times where I, where I feel like I'm not praying enough or I feel like I'm not reading the Bible enough or I feel like I'm not living the way I'm supposed to live. It, when, when I'm looking at my performance, it's really hard to understand that God loves me. It's hard to believe that God loves me because most of the time I don't even love me. Like, what's to be love? Look at the way I'm living my life. So I don't know if I'm the only one that's ever struggled with, with whether or not you know, God loves me, but my problem is, is when I'm looking at myself, it's hard for me to believe God loves me. That's why I love what John says in his letter. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Like, like you got to understand, it's incredible that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's saying it in a sense that it's so hard to believe. Why? Because it's so hard to believe. For so many of us, it's so hard to believe. Like the prodigal, we struggle to truly believe and accept that salvation is by grace alone. What do I mean? We have the status of a son, but we've got the mindset of a servant. And like the prodigal, we find ourselves coming to God so often saying, well, I, I just don't feel worthy. I don't feel good enough. I don't honestly feel like I really deserve a father-son relationship with you, so just give me a boss-employee relationship. Just, just let me fix things. Let, let me clean things up. I, I'm not, I don't want to ask too much of you. Just give me my daily bread and let me get by and let me clean. You see how easy it is to come to God with, with what the prodigal's doing? Like, I can't believe that you would want a father-son relationship with me. Just give me the employee-boss relationship and let me fix things and let me clean things up. And the truth is, most all of us come to Christ this way. Like, we may say in our head that salvation is by grace and that we're children of God, but honestly, most of us really don't feel like it. We don't really relate to God that way. See, the problem again is we have the legal status of son, but we haven't had the experience. What am I trying to say? If all we had is what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus came into the world and he gave us the legal status as sons, it's not enough. To have a full, rounded Christian life, we also need what the Spirit has done. You see, the prodigal says, oh, I'm so unworthy. Make me like a hired servant. It seems very humble, but it's an absolute insult. It, it, it must have been so insulting to the father for him to come like that. Let me put it like this. One of my favorite legends about Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great had this general whose daughter was getting married. And he comes to Alexander the Great because he needed money for his daughter's wedding. And, and he says, my daughter's getting married. I need money. And Alexander says to him, you've been a great general. You've been faithful to me. You've been loyal to me. How much do you need? I would love to give it to you. And the guy asks for this unbelievable, outrageous sum of money, almost offensive how much he asks for. And Alexander the Great gets this, this look of like shock and joy and excitement. And with a big smile on his face, he said, absolutely, yes, go see my treasurer. It's yours. And he walks out of the room and all of the other advisors sitting in the room looks at Alexander the Great and it's like, how in the world could you feel that way? How could you do that? I mean, did you even hear? I mean, how obnoxious of this guy to even 
presume to ask you for something like that. And Alexander said, this man has done me a huge honor. Not only has he shown me that he truly believes I'm fabulously wealthy, but he has also shown me that he truly believes I'm radically generous. This man has done me a great honor. I want you to think about that in regards to our prayer life for a moment. You see, when the prodigal says, I'm not worthy, make me like a hired servant, what he's saying to God is, I cannot believe you're wealthy enough to forgive my past. I cannot believe you're generous enough to actually be a father to me. And it's an insult. It may look like humility, but it's an insult to God. And honestly, if if we really thought about it, part of the reason, too, is I don't want to give up control. I mean, as long as it's a boss-employee relationship with God, if it's religious and I understand the terms, then I know what God can expect out of me, and I know what I can expect out of God. But if it's everything, if it's free, if it's sonship, that means God can ask anything He wants out of me. And it's a little scary to give up that level of control over my life. So this happens. We're adopted, but the Spirit must come and, and, and must affirm that it's true. And so in the story of the prodigal, the son doesn't believe the father would ever love him again. So what does the father do? It says the father ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What is this? It's it's a metaphor of what the Spirit does in our life. See, not only are we the sons of God, but the Spirit comes so that we can actually experience the love of God. The son in the father's kiss felt the father's love. It wasn't enough for the father to say, bring the robe. He kissed him. He wanted him to not just know that he was being restored as a son, but he wanted him to feel the love. You see, this is is in addition to the objective fact that I am a son. Again, you can be adopted. You can be a son of God and not feel like it. Let me put it like this. When my oldest son was, was younger, when he was four or five years old, we would... You know, we'd love to go to theme parks. We'd be walking around a theme park. Sometimes we'd hold hands. Sometimes we'd walk around. And in those moments, he knew he was loved by me. Like, he knew I was his father. He, he's never been insecure about that at all. Like, he's always been secure in how much I love him and how much I adore him and that, that he's my son. But every once in a while, we'd be walking around, just kind of, you know, riding rides, doing things. And every once in a while, I would just grab him, like, randomly and kind of surprise him. And I'd pick him up in my arms and I'd just kiss him on the cheek. Now, in that moment, he was no more of my son. He wasn't any more of my son in the moment I kissed him. But can I tell you, it felt different. He was still my son. He didn't become more my son in that moment. He was my son, no less than he was a moment before. But the experience of being my son felt completely different in that moment. That's what I'm describing. You can know that you're the son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God, but there's a moment when the Holy Spirit comes where you can taste it, you can feel it, you can experience it. It's an assurance. It's an assurance. And, and, And let me say... You know, our hearts are wicked and sinful. We don't, we don't base our salvation on emotions or on feeling, but can I tell you, it's part of it. It's part of it. We're, we're saved by grace. That is a status change that, that God gives us through Christ. 
But there's an addition of the Holy Spirit coming into our life where we can feel and experience what Jesus has done for, feel and experience the love God has, and it produces something. It says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts internally, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, calls out in the Greek is krasdon. It calls out is a really weak English translation. What what this Greek word really means, it's a loud cry. It's a very emotional cry. It's deep and profound. It's something that you feel. It's not not just something you say. It's something that you feel. That's what Paul is saying. There's a feeling, Abba, Father, and it just comes flowing. It's something you experience, something you can taste. You see, most of the Christian life, we simply claim our sonship. We claim what Jesus has done on our behalf. But there's moments that we felt, that, that I felt, where the Spirit is moving, where I don't have to, to tell myself to believe it. I feel it. Like it, it moves from my head to my heart. And, and incredible things take place when that happens. Let me give you just a couple of them. Prayer is no longer mechanical or formal, but it's filled with passion and freedom. In those moments where I feel the Holy Spirit moving in my heart, I feel that Abba Father cry from within, where it's no longer I have to claim the fact that God is my Father, but I feel God's love for me as His child. All of a sudden, my prayer life just, it changes. Because again, prayer is talking to God. It's communication with God. It's not formal. It's not mechanical. It just flows. When my son comes to talk to me, he doesn't have rehearsed speeches, trying to get everything just right, hoping that, that, no, he just comes and he talks. It's very free, very passionate. Why? Because he feels like my son. I tell you, when, when we feel Abba Father, that cry deep with, within, prayer changes. And then I, I, love, I love the word Abba. Abba assures us that we are welcome, loved, and accepted. There's an assurance that the word Abba gives. I mean, think about this for a moment. Paul is writing to a Gentile, non-Jewish audience, and he's using a very specific Aramaic, idiomatic phrase. It's not something they would have grown up with. Abba is the term daddy. You go to Israel today, you see kids on the playground. Abba, Abba, Abba. I mean, it's daddy. It, it is... When, when you say Abba, you are completely convinced in who you are and, and who your father is, and there's no fear. There is an assurance. When you feel insecure around your dad, you don't call him daddy. You call him dad, you call him father. But when you're a little child, daddy, 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 you have to teach a child to be insecure around their father. Because they naturally come with this assurance. They assume that you'll do anything. You know, I've got a little 15-month at hold. Every time he sees me, I mean, he just walks towards me. There's no fear. There's no insecurity. He knows that I love him. He just presumes that I'm going to accept him. You see, when the Holy Spirit moves in your life, again, this is not something you can work up in your mind. 
This is something that only the Holy Spirit can give you, an experience inside where all of a sudden, in that moment, it's Abba. It's like, I know I'm accepted. I know I'm loved. I, know, I have no reservation. I have no insecurity. It just it brings this out of my life. It's what the Spirit of God will do. So, so let me end with something practical then. How do we cry out? If the Holy Spirit brings us to this place where we cry out, Abba, Father, how do we do it? Well, let me, let me first say you cannot manufacture this. There's not like, you know, do this and that, and then all of a sudden this experience takes place. No, no, you cannot manufacture this. This is a prerogative of God. This is by His grace. But what you can do is position yourself to receive it. So let me be clear. You cannot earn it. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot work it up. But you can put yourselves in positions where it happens, where it begins to take place in your life. How? Well, remember verse 6 says, because you are sons, because you are his son. What does that tell us? It tells us that you cannot have verse 6 and 7 without verse 4 and 5. The only way the Holy Spirit can do this in your life is because of your sonship, because you've been adopted as children of God. That's the only way it happens. So it all goes back to understanding what Jesus has done, to meditating on what Jesus has done, to thinking about what Jesus has done, to putting your mind and thoughts and focus on what Jesus has done. Because the more you understand what Jesus has done, the more the Holy Spirit can come and with this cry, Abba, Father. So let me give you three practical takeaways to really help position yourself for this. The first is meditate on the Word. I mean, this is why I'm so passionate about the one-year Bible. We, we shouldn't just read the Bible every day. We should meditate on the Word every day. The more I think about what Jesus has done, the more I meditate on God's Word. And Jesus is the Word. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. The more I meditate on the Word, the more I open myself up to the Holy Spirit doing this in my life. There's been times where I'm just at home in my study reading the Word, and all of a sudden, the, the feeling comes over me, the experience. It's like, God, it's like I'm reading something, and all of a sudden, it's like the Holy Spirit says, that's true, that's, that, that's, it's, and it's, it just breathes life into me, and it's like I know who he is. King David said, who, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like, and I love this metaphor, and I want you to just imagine if this was you that it's describing. That person is like, what person? The person that meditates on the word. The person that meditates on the word. The person that meditates on the word. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Meditate on the word. Second thing is abandon self-consciousness in worship. Worship is one of the most powerful, I don't know how many times in the middle of a worship service, when the music is playing and I'm in a room full of people and we're all worshiping God together, there, there's moments where I just forget about everybody around me. I abandon self and I just, I begin to worship. And so often in those moments, I feel the Holy Spirit begin to move in me. I, I've, in those moments when I'm thinking about him and I'm focused on him and I'm singing to him and I'm just, I just abandon myself and I, and I forget all about what's going on around me. It's those moments where it's just like, Abba, Father, I, 
I, I know who I am. I know who you are. I know how, and it, I can taste it in those moments. See, the problem is so many of us don't know how to abandon ourselves in worship. We're guarded in worship. We're self-conscious in worship. You know, like my little 15-month at home, when he comes up to me so often, he, you know how he comes up to me? He comes up to me like this. He's just, he's just abandoning himself. He's just like, I'm just going to give you my life. I'm just, I'm here for you. <laughs> just pick me up, pick me up. Can I tell you how good that feels as a father to have your little child? Now, let me contrast that for a moment. How would I feel as a father if when I came home, my son was standing like this? Can I be honest with you? That wouldn't feel very good to me. That wouldn't feel very good at all. I like this much better than I like this. Let's ask ourselves the question, how are we making God feel during worship? Because he is our father, right? He is our father. Well, it's just not my personality to lift my hands. Well, we do it at football games. I mean, what, I can worship a football team, but I can't worship God? I'm telling you, we don't love God the way we feel comfortable. We love God the way he likes to be loved. I love when my son comes to me with his arms up. It makes me feel good as a father. And, and this is not unbiblical. The Bible talks a lot about this. You're going to see some of it in your small group guy. But he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. I mean, no, that's a statement of feeling and emotion right there. That's not a head knowledge statement. That is a, 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 I'm experiencing something right now. And as a result, my lips are going to glorify you. I'm not going to worship you in my heart. I'm going I'm to make this thing out loud. I'm not just going to stand there quietly in a room and let everyone else do the singing for me. My lips are going to worship you. I will praise you as long as I live. I, and, and in your name, I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods with singing lips mouth will praise you. I'm telling, I can't tell you how many times where I've just lost myself and I felt that Holy Spirit cry out, Abba, Father, within. And then let me just give you one more faithfulness to prayer. I'm telling you again, prayer is that time with God. Prayer is when you're, you're in relationship with God. You're talking to him. You're communicating with him. You're, you're having a conversation with him. So often in my times of prayer, I feel that. Like there's times where I'm just praying, and, and for the most part, it's in my head. But then there's times where, where, where all of a sudden, it goes from my head to my heart, and I feel it. I'm experiencing something in prayer. That's why Paul in Romans says, be faithful to prayer. Be faithful. You know, this is one of the very reasons why we do 21 days of prayer. We begin our August 21 days of prayer next Sunday. We do it twice a year, January and August. We do it in January and August after the big holiday seasons because I don't know about you, but I get a little lazy in the summer, spiritually speaking. And so I like that August season to kind of get myself refocused for the fall. And so starting next Sunday, we're going to have 21 days, Monday to Friday. We're going to be here 6.30 in the morning to 7.30, not tomorrow, but the following Monday. And then Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 10. Why? We want to be faithful to prayer. Why? We want to position ourselves for the Holy Spirit. 
Because I don't want to just know that I'm God's son. I want to feel like God's son. I don't want to just have to claim it. I want to experience it. And I know the more I put myself in certain positions, the more I have the opportunity to experience. Again, you cannot manufacture it. You cannot work it up. This is not emotionalism. This is a relationship that only the Holy Spirit can bring in your heart. And there are many of us who, who know it very real. Like I have felt this in my life from time to time. Where I wasn't just having to stand on the fact that I was God's son. I tasted it. I knew it. I was experiencing it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was causing this cry from deep within, Abba, Father. So let me end with this thought. I heard this this week, and it really kind of, to me, sums up the whole message. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Put your focus on God, and you get it all. Put your focus on yourself, you lose everything, in other words. Would you close your eyes with me for just a moment? Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would begin to reveal to people the work that Jesus has done on their behalf. And if they've never made that decision to take a step to surrender their life to Jesus, to be adopted as sons and daughters because of what Jesus has done, because of the fact that Jesus has redeemed us, he's rescued us, he's paid for our entire past, present, and future so that we could be accepted and worthy to the Father so that we could be adopted. If they've never made that decision, I pray that today they, they would take a step. And I pray for those that have the promise, but they've never really possessed it. They've never felt it. They've never experienced it. They understand what Jesus has done for them, but they've never experienced that Holy Spirit cry from within that allows them to feel your love, to experience your love. We don't base our salvation on a feeling, but it's so sweet and nice when we have it. That experience is just so beautiful. So I pray that as your children, as your followers, that we will we'll position ourselves, we'll meditate on what Jesus has done in the Word. We'll learn to worship you. Abandon our self-consciousness to do it. We'll be faithful to times of prayer, to seek you, to know you, to be close to you so that the Holy Spirit can give us those moments of assurance. Where Abba becomes a, a cry of our heart, where there's no insecurity. Just like, you know, my one-year-old child there's just no insecurity about how you feel about us. Work, work in us, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? As we close today, our prayer team will be available. If you're here today and maybe something in the message struck a chord, maybe you've never experienced what I'm talking about through the Holy Spirit. You understand that you're God's son, but you've never really felt like God's son. I would encourage you to let somebody pray with you today. 
If you're here today and you want to take that step, you want to make a decision to follow Christ, I would encourage you to come forward. Let someone Just let him know, hey, I want to be adopted. I want to be God's son. I want to give my life to Jesus. They would love to pray with you today. Or if there's any other challenge going on in your life, whatever it is, the best thing that I've learned in my life is don't be the only one praying for me. Let somebody pray with you for whatever it is you're facing in life. Let's close with one song. The team will be available during the song and at the end of the song.